right. Well, hey, good morning, Grace. It is good to be here with you. If you've got your Bible, I would like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to be, and we're going to be finishing out our, our series on gratitude, hashtag gratitude, if you've been here in, uh, for the previous weeks uh, of the series. But I, I don't know if I can believe that it's, it's October. Can you believe that? It feels like October outside, so uh, that helps me believe it a little bit. But uh, October's known for a few things. One of the things at the end of the month that it's known for at our house is candy. Candy. And uh, I'm not an expert on, on late night television, but there's a guy by the name of Jimmy Kimmel. I brought a picture of him, Jimmy Kimmel Live. And every year at this month, during the month of October, for, for many years, he has done a series on his show where he asks his, his viewers to, to do something. He asks them to get their cell phone out to film their children as they, the parents, tell their children that they have eaten all of their Halloween candy while they slept. And he asks them to post it on YouTube with the hashtag, there's some of the reactions, shocking, right? With the hashtag, hey Jimmy Kimmel, I told my kids I ate all of their Halloween candy. It's a little bit longer than our hashtag gratitude uh, series, but, and you can imagine, I mean, you can imagine all of the reactions, screaming, crying, throwing things, right? Some words that you wouldn't expect to come out of the mouth of a child who is, who is that age, right? And he does it every year. It's one of his most popular segments. And my reaction is, is like, like, what did you expect? <laughs> what did you expect to happen? You, 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 you lied, right? You told your kids you stole from them, and then you posted it on social media for the whole world to see in the hopes of getting famous. It's sort of like a metaphor for modern life in the age of, of social media. Nobody in the world, no child in the world, would be happy about losing their Halloween candy. And if you want to be smart, like the rest of us, you just take a little bit at a time <laughs> every day like the government. It's easier that way. But whether you lie and tell me you took the whole thing, or whether you take a little bit at a time, the, the, sort of the, the reality is nobody is happy about subtraction when it comes to the things we care about. Our resources, our financial resources, our stuff, we don't subtraction, no matter what Marie Kondo says, does not spark joy in our hearts. It doesn't make us happy on tax day, it doesn't make us happy when we pull up to a toll booth on the Muskogee Turnpike. It doesn't make us happy when the preacher starts to talk about money or giving. And so some of you may have had that experience. You're like, uh-oh, gratitude in giving. I know there, this was go subtraction. <laughs> and so my question today is, why does God ask us for gratitude, for cheerfulness, for gratitude in giving, when so much of us sort of works against that notion that we should be happy about giving or that we should be happy about subtraction. And, and I, I understand this personally because yesterday I bought a smoker, like, like a grill, not a, you know, um, not a real smoker. <laughs> and I came home and we've been talking about this purchase for a while and I walked in and what do you think Brianna's very first question was? Well, how much did you spend? 
I said, honey, I bought the cheapest model that they sold at that particular location. She said, that's not what I asked you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I'm a little scared right now. <laughs> subtraction, right? We don't experience gratitude very much in the context of, of subtraction. So why does God ask for us to be grateful, to be cheerful when we give? And we've been walking through different aspects of gratitude. We talked about earlier in the series, cultivating gratitude as a worldview. We talked about the obstacles to gratitude. We talked about even the, 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 the tough side of gratitude. Gratitude when maybe all in life seems lost. And so this week, as we talk about Serve Sunday, as we talk about other things, we're going to talk about gratitude and giving. And why does God ask us to cultivate gratitude in that way? And the verse we're going to read is what I call a coffee cup passage. It's a verse, it's a passage that has a verse that is probably, we've heard it a hundred times, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And I think it was Dallas Willard, the philosopher, who said, familiarity doesn't breed contempt. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. And that breeds contempt. What he means is, when you've heard something a thousand times, you actually become unfamiliar with what it's actually talking about, and that creates problems. And so we're going to dive into this passage and ask, why, why does God love a cheerful giver? If you've got your passage, you've got your Bible open, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll start in verse 5, and we'll go from there. Paul says this to the church in in Corinth. He says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance, in advance of Paul's visit, and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. And then it will be ready as a generous gift and not as one grudgingly given. Then in verse six, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for here it is, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written in the Psalms, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 
This is, this is God's word. God loves a cheerful giver. I was thinking this week, why does God do that? Why does he love that? I, I get paid every month from, from my primary job at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and I honestly don't care if the payroll supervisor, when she cuts my check, feels grateful. <laughs> I don't care. I mean, and if she's here, I'll tell her that to her face. I just care if she cuts the check. I don't care if she's cheerful. And I remember we planted a church in West Michigan. Brianna, Brianna and I were part of the team and we had nothing. We had no building. We had no people. We had nothing. And every week after Sunday morning on Monday morning, I would come in to see how much came in and the tithes and offering. And I didn't really care how cheerful people were then either. <laughs> I would have amended the passage to the Lord loves a giver. <laughs> any giver, faithful giver, you know. So, so why does God care about our gratitude, our thankfulness when we give? When, as I said, I don't care particularly about that when I get my paycheck cut from the payroll supervisor every week. And if we want to understand this passage, we have to understand a little bit of the background to it. And so some background on Paul's, what he calls his collection. Paul's collection. And this is one of the favorite stories I have about Paul's ministry because in many ways it flies under the radar. He talks about his collection in a lot of his letters, but the, the references to it are tucked away oftentimes at the end of the letter amidst a long list of strange names. And so it doesn't get a lot of press. It doesn't sound particularly exciting. But if you know Corinth, Corinth is Paul's problem child. Corinth is this, this church that has all sorts of problems, and yet Paul loves the church at Corinth. And so he's talking at this point in the letter to his problem child church about this gift, this collection that is his big dream to unite the fighting factions of the early church. There's this myth that the early church was this, this pristine period, right? Or it was the church was just all on the same page, and that's a myth. The early church was divided in Paul's day primarily into two factions. They were divided along racial lines, cultural lines, political lines, between the Jewish faction based in Jerusalem and Paul of Paul's strange little communities increasingly made up of Gentiles all around the Mediterranean world. And in these communities, they did strange things, like they ate pork. I don't know if they smoked it or not. I haven't looked into that. But <laughs> They didn't keep kosher necessarily. The men weren't necessarily circumcised because Paul was preaching this gospel of grace through Jesus Christ that didn't require you to keep all the works of the law, the Jewish law. And so there was tension between the Jewish, the Jewish churches and the Gentile churches, and it flames up over and over in Paul's ministry. And so Paul has this dream to unite these two factions, and he calls it his collection. And he begins to gather money from the Gentile world, from these former pagans who have now given allegiance to Jesus as Lord all of these towns, and he mentions these different Gentile communities, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring it as a gift 
to the suffering, persecuted, poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And they're going to see that there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, that all are one in Christ because we're going to put our money where the gospel is. And he calls it his collection. And so he's raising money not for himself. He doesn't have a private jet. He's not on Preachers with Sneakers, the Instagram page, if you've heard of that. But for others, he's raising it for the Jewish Christians, many of whom don't like him a whole lot, to show that the church is, is one family. That's his collection. Some of you have maybe received a gift like that. You've received a gift that wasn't just about money, but it was a gift that says, we are one. I, I love you. I see you. I appreciate you. It doesn't have to be a really expensive gift, but it's a gift in the service of communion and fellowship. And so that's the gift that Paul is, is talking about here. And so he's encouraging a certain kind of giving. If we had to make some observations for our own life, I think you could say it this way. Giving, Paul is saying in this passage, is a form of sowing. Giving is a form of sowing. And he says in verse six, remember this part, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Giving is a form of sowing. You sow what you reap. And if you're like me, if you've spent a little bit of time in your life watching late night Christian cable, you've maybe seen this verse misused. You've seen it abused, right? As if there is a magic formula, right? Where if you just give enough money to my television ministry, then you won't get sick, you won't have problems in life because you know, there's this formula, you sow what you reap and if you sow into my bank account, God will fill up your bank account. Right? And that's not what Paul's saying. Um, that's not what he's saying at all. But the problem is sometimes when those of us have seen something abused, we don't recognize the truth in a line because we've just been exposed to the abuse. I remember one time my, my very Scottish doctoral supervisor wrote in the margin of one of my chapters that I had submitted to him in Latin, untranslated, abusus non tollit usum. Right? And I said, look, I mean, I know I'm in this doctoral program, but I'm also from Oklahoma. <laughs> I don't know what that means. It translates to the abuse does not nullify the use. The abuse doesn't nullify the proper use. And so Paul says, giving is a form of sowing, and if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. We're called to sow into the kingdom generously. And a few weeks ago, I took some students to a conference that was run by an organization called Seedbed. I brought a picture of their uh, a picture of their organization's catchphrase. And their catchphrase is sowing for a great awakening. That's their mission. 
And if you've never heard that word awakening before, there's, there's all sorts of times where God does a work and he, he saves somebody. There's a conversion experience and you've had a conversion experience, hopefully. And there's other times that we're not, we wouldn't talk about just as a conversion experience, but we would talk about almost as a revival experience where not just one person, but like a whole group of people, maybe a church or maybe a campus or maybe a community experiences this fresh work of God. God saves people. God does works in their families. He does works in their, in their hearts. And it's not just a conversion. It's a revival. It's bigger. And then there are a few times, specifically in American history, but also in world history, where we would say it's not just a revival of a campus or a town or a church, but it's an awakening where across whole nations, there's this work of God. People are saved. And we've seen that in the past, the first great awakening. You've maybe heard that phrase where people like John Wesley and George Whitfield, people like Jonathan Edwards, see this move of God where thousands and thousands of people are saved and transformed by God's grace. And so this seedbed, their motto is, we're sowing for a great awakening. We're praying, we're working, we're giving because we want God to do again in our time what he did in the time of Edwards and Wesley and Whitfield. We think he can do it again. Who sows sparingly, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. So we want to sow for an awakening. And I remember J.D. Walt, next slide, he's the founder of Seedbed, and he told a story at the conference of growing up on the farm and riding with his grandpa in this old pickup truck when it hadn't rained for weeks and weeks and the fields were dry. And his grandpa in the pickup truck with him as just a little boy would sing this sort of hokey, okey, hokey, okey song. We need some rain. We need some rain. Lord, make it rain. Lord, make it rain. And then sometimes when it would get really dry, he would throw in some specifics. We need some rain about an inch and a half. (laughs) (laughs) And he said many times, it would rain. It would rain. And so grandpa would sow in the expectation that it would rain. Not because it had already rained, but because he trusted that you sow, that you reap what you you sow. Hosea chapter 10 talks about the same thing Paul's talking about. Hosea says, sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up the unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Sowing whether we're talking about finances, whether we're talking about time, whether we're talking about prayer, sowing is an act of trust. Sowing is an act of trust. You can't hang on to your seed until you see it sprout. It doesn't work that way. You have to put it into the soil. You can't hang on to your seed until you know whether the future weather pattern is going to be good or bad. You can't leave the seed on the surface so that you can snatch it back up if you have second thoughts. You have to trust that the seed, your time, your your talents, 
your treasure will grow into something bigger than it looks at the moment. It's an investment. Sowing is an investment. And I was just on the farm recently with my father-in-law, and we drove around his, his land, and he was showing me his land, and there's a patch over here that's a field, and it's plowed, and there's seed there. And there's a patch over here that's what they call CRP. Some of you know CRP. It's land that the government pays you to not do anything with. We're like, I want that land, right? <laughs> it's like my yard at home. Um, so CRP, just don't touch it, right? And it's a sure investment because the government will pay you for just leaving it alone. It's for conservation and for other things like that. But sowing is different. It requires trust that something will come of it. And so the application for Paul's first idea that giving is a form of sowing, you could say it this way. Am I willing to trust God enough to put my seed in the ground? And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about all the different ways that we're called to give to others. Our time, our prayers, right? Our attention, looking up from our phones and investing in people is sowing, it's sowing, it's sowing, it's, it's sowing. It's an act of trust. Giving in those ways is a form of sowing. And then you could ask this question, okay, well, great. Why does it matter if we're grateful while we do it? Why is gratitude important? And I think that starts to come out in the second thing. The second thing Paul highlights in this passage is that grateful sowers, the people who are actually cheerful givers, cheerful sowers, grateful sowers recognize that all of our seed belongs to God. Grateful sowers recognize that all our seed, our time, our talents, our bodies belong to God. Verse 10 says this, now he, and Paul's talking about God, now he God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And he references specifically God is the supplier of seed. God is the one who gives seed and God is the one who gives fruit or, or increase and so when the, when the seed you're sowing isn't yours, you can sow it with gratitude. And I saw this yesterday because in the place I bought the smoker, <laughs> they had a candy aisle. And I was already in trouble. I didn't need any more purchases. But Penelope was with me. And I had promised her, I said, honey, if you come with daddy and you don't whine and you don't know, I'll get you a piece of candy. Right? And she tried to push it. She tried for a box of candy. She tried for other things. She settled on a ring pop. Right? This, was a, this was the ring pop. Um, if I keep giving her this kind of ring, I'll hopefully ward off other kinds later in life but, um, until it's the right time. But we have this line that Brianna and I use when we go to stores because the candy aisle is like our nemesis. You know, it's the worst place in the store and, uh, and so the kids are always asking, always grabbing, always, you know, da, 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 and we always say, and they say, can we get some candy? And it's like, sure, honey, if you brought your money, you can get candy, right? Which usually works because four-year-olds don't typically have credit cards, right? If you brought money, you can buy some, right? 
But in this particular case, she knew it wasn't her money, it was her father's money. And in her mind, her father has unlimited resources. <laughs> unlimited resources. And so she was more than happy to, to ask for the candy because I just, I'm loaded. After all, I bought a smoker, right? That was the proof. And when it's not your money, you're more than happy to make that withdrawal, to make the purchase. And in this case, she's wrong. I don't have unlimited resources. But in our case, our Heavenly Father does. Right? The cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it. Our bodies, our lives belong to, to God. And since all that belongs to him, when we recognize that, it allows our sowing to be more generous because it's, it's not our seed to begin with. It's not our seed in a final or full sense. And so the question then, there's, there's sort of freedom in that, but there's also great responsibility. And so the, the responsibility works like this. How would my father want me to invest his seed? His seed. The talents he's given me, the time that I have in my schedule, the resources he's given me to steward. How would he, my father want me to invest his seed? And here's the thing I, I love about God is he is not anti-pleasure. He's not. This idea that God wants all of us to live like Mother Teresa in Calcutta with no possessions, right? I, just, I don't have that view of God. I don't think he's anti-ring pop for his children. I think he wants to see us enjoy the life that we have, that we're not required to just, to just not have anything in the terms of possessions. He's not anti-pleasure. He also asks us to budget and to live so that we can invest in, in others. I was reading a book by Rosaria Butterfield recently, and I've mentioned it before, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she talks about how for her and her family, that means they enlarge their grocery budget so that they can invite other people to the family dinner table really regularly. Right? Other people in their community, in their neighborhood that are hurting People, maybe a graduate student who's just buried in work, and she says, come, come, eat with us, right? Sit at our table. And that's how the church and the earth Okay. Worked. <laughs> Got to shorten the mic. We'll see if that stays working, right? So grateful sowers recognize that all our seed belongs to God. And since it belongs to God, last point, it matters how you sow. Since it belongs to him, it matters how you sow. Verse 7, we'll read this and talk about the things that Paul highlights. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And there's a few things in this, even just in this short verse about how we're called to sow, 
with our time, with our talents, with our, with our treasure. There's some things that Paul highlights. I think you could say he highlights some of the hows. He says he wants us to expect a harvest. That's the first thing. Give, sow in the expectation that there will be a harvest, both for you and for others. This idea that God doesn't want his people to expect a reward, I think, I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it comes from Immanuel Kant, but it doesn't come from Jesus. God wants his people to sow in the expectation of a harvest for others, but also for ourselves. We see this even with Jesus. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross in the expectation of that, that joy. Expect a harvest, not just financially, but in the passage it mentions the, the righteousness, the righteousness that endures forever when we sow generously into the lives of others. Second thing I think we see, have a plan, a personal premeditated plan. Make a plan. He says, Paul says this in verse seven, you should decide in your heart to give. You should decide, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And in fact, he writes 2 Corinthians in part because he wants to give the church in Corinth plenty of time to plan for how they're going to sow into this project called his collection. He doesn't just show up in Corinth and say, all right, get out your wallets. He wants them to make a premeditated plan for their giving to the Jewish Christians. And then the third thing, give with gratitude. So freely, not for Paul, but for the kingdom. Have a plan for how you give. And so today is, is Serve Sunday. Uh, we're highlighting not the budget, we're highlighting service. And we're talking about how could what could happen if all of us began to leverage our gratitude, not just for ourselves, but for others? If we began to sow generously, both here at Grace and in our families, in our homes, in our communities at large. Maybe for you it would mean providing meals for someone who needs a meal through a meal train, taking leadership on that. Maybe for some of you, it would mean uh, giving, sowing your time through, through babysitting, through other ways of service, sowing in, in children's ministry, giving and leading in a nonprofit here in Bartlesville, not just at Grace Community Church, but at some place like The Rock or, or The Lighthouse. For some of us, maybe it means taking a look at our budget and saying, God, how can I free up more space to be generous so that when I am generous, I can actually be happy about it. I can actually be grateful because I've, I've planned to sow into others' lives, both financially, but also in terms of our time and our gifts and our abilities. It matters how we sow because the Lord loves a cheerful, grateful Giver. Let's pray.